Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. This week, we are talking about infancy. Little baby babies. Yeah. What's it like being a baby, depending on your culture, your context, your time period? Uh, I mean, the answer is not great for most of history. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's not actually that great to be a baby anytime. Oh, yeah. Like, it's definitely... Limited mobility, you're pooping in your clothes. Yeah, you're a hundred percent diet. Yeah, you're also just like a hundred percent dependent on your caregivers, so like if they're not great, then you're not having a great time. Yeah. Because then you're sitting in your poopy clothes for longer and like it's it's a whole time. Yeah. But you know love to be a baby. Cat life, I think, is the ideal. Yes. So, as per usual, I'm going to start us off with the classical world and the medieval world, and then Margot is going to take it away in the new world, and then we'll end off with how the Victorians just went off the rails, and the consequences that we've had. So, without further ado, let's talk about being a little baby. A little baby baby. Now... Uh, I don't know, is this trigger warning? First chunk of this is we gotta talk about infanticide uh, and, like, exposure because Killing essentially... Those little babies. Yep, yep. Uh, because, frankly, in most of the ancient world this was pretty much like practiced almost everywhere and was pretty par for the course uh, from my readings, from what I've seen. It essentially was like there is evidence of this being practiced throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia and Oceania and South America like for sure. And then in what we would think of today as the US and Canada, it's like question mark maybe um because the sources we have for that uh, rather than being archaeological or like you know, yeah. written documents like in the Romans or Greeks or whatever. Uh, that evidence tends to come from like white men in the 19th and early to mid 20th centuries writing about what they allegedly saw when they observed yeah. indigenous cultures. So, you know, my. Point being, they weren't exactly accurate or, yeah, like, yeah, they were just, they were not, they weren't great. Yeah, but my point is, this was an incredibly common practice worldwide through like ancient history. Um, in some of the, you know, if we want to get into some of the specifics, you have the ancient Roman tradition where. The baby would be laid on the ground 
and it was only allowed to live if the father picked up the baby. And from then on, that baby becomes a member of the family. Otherwise, if the father of the family refused to pick up the baby and left it on the ground, then the child would be left outside to die of exposure. Um, this cool. was very similar in ancient Greece. Uh, if you look at pre, like basically ancient to pre-Christian medieval Scandinavia, so like right up till like year 1100-ish, the practice in Norse paganism was that the father would take the baby in his arms, put water on the baby's head, and give it a name, and only then the mother could nurse the child. Otherwise, if the father did not pick up the child, the baby would be exposed or abandoned out in the woods, in the wilds somewhere. Interestingly, there is a very, um, there is one noted big exception, which is the ancient Egyptians, because the religion of ancient Egypt forbade infanticide and of like, and this applied to children of all status and of, uh, to boys and girls. So there was no like gender based infanticide, um, because throughout, particularly throughout Europe and Asia, there does seem to have been uh, a much mm -hmm. higher rate of infanticide towards female infants versus males. But to the ancient Egyptians, they believed that all children, regardless of gender or social status, right. should be brought up. So there's actually um, records from the Greco-Roman period where they are writing about the ancient Egyptians and saying like, wow, these people are so weird. They keep rescuing the babies that we abandon in manure heaps to die <laughs> because these weirdos insist that that's not okay <laughs> and immoral. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the normal method for the Greeks and Romans was often just dumping babies on manure heaps and the ancient Egyptians said, that's not okay. <laughs> let's, and they let's would rescue them. And in, yeah. Um, so in some cases, they would adopt them as foundlings and raise them as their own. In other less nice cases, they would be brought up as slaves for the household or to be sold, but they weren't exposed and left to die in a pile of actual Excellent. poo. So. <laughs> I guess that's, again, I really need to reiterate that the bar <laughs> is on the ground here. <laughs> we really, we really start to see the moving away from um, exposing mm -hmm. infants um, in the, basically with the arrival of Christianity and then yeah. later with Islam, um, because both religions explicitly forbid infanticide and exposure. Um, that is not to say that this was immediately taken up by everyone. For example, it took till 318 for Constantine I to declare that infanticide is actually a crime. Uh, and in 374, Valentinian I 
actually mandated rearing all children. So, you know, it was still very common to expose babies, particularly girls, at this time. And it took until 589 for the Council of Constantinople to actually declare that infanticide was, in fact, homicide. So prior to this, it was genuinely, generally understood as, like, yeah, it's bad, but it's like a lesser degree of bad than killing, like, an adult or, like, an older yeah. child, even. So, as we can see, this is a very slow <laughs> turnover towards these ideas of, hey, maybe we shouldn't do the infanticide so much. And, of course, this does take even longer to kind of really mm -hmm. take a hold culturally. And through the early Middle Ages, it's still quite common for people to just abandon and expose newborns. And this is when we start seeing more and more intervention, particularly from um, the church in Europe. So, for example, the first foundling house in Europe was established in Milan in 787 because there were so many cases there of infanticides and out-of-wedlock births yeah. that were, you know, then being abandoned because it was seen as shameful. Um, you have the Hospital of the Holy Spirit in Rome, which was founded by Pope Innocent III because so many women were throwing their newborns <laughs> into the Tiber River. Um, it's just like... Yeah? I, I, I like the, like, let's not address, like, an underlying issue of all literally all of humanity. Like... There's yeah. there's a yeah there's a bunch of women throwing babies into the river. We should make a new place for them to throw the babies, rather than like why are all these women throwing their babies away? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's definitely a not great situation, but at the very least, again, bar is <laughs> on the ground, but. <laughs> In the Middle Ages, you know, you get it, it, it becomes more and more common to have, yeah. um, like, orphanages, foundling houses, or just, um, you know, children being left mm -hmm. at the door of a church or an abbey, and it was just basically assumed that the church would function yeah. as a social safety net and raise these children who didn't have anybody else to take care of them. Um, and it's very much a, like, it, it, it does, like, mm -hmm. we still have this today to an extent, right? Like, you can leave yeah. a baby at the hospital Safe or, like, at the fire department and they will, and, yes, exactly, where you are still... legally allowed to just leave a baby. Yeah, that's true. And churches, um, it's... Yeah, it's it's very much a like situation of okay on one hand we do want to ask why people are just throwing yeah. away their kids so often, but it's also an issue of like 
right like at this point that that had been the norm yeah. basically up till that point like and and i think that's something that we do have to address is this idea of being like super emotionally yeah. bonded with newborns is a very recent phenomenon um because historically it was just so yeah common that like your newborn was going to die like about a quarter of children died in that first year of life so there was just a much more you know emotionally detached right view <laughs> and and also in many cases a pragmatic view of okay i already have a whole bunch of children i can't feed another one i can't take care of another one so i'm going to expose them um and and we see the founding of these you know safe havens basically for these kids as a response to basically that that sort of fatalism and that sort of right yeah discarding of of kids basically um because i think the other thing is they we we do have to remember that i mean again i'm not trying to make excuses i'm trying to give explanations but you know like it's definitely messed up but like we do also have to remember that infants and toddlers they cannot contribute to the household and were an enormous drain on resources for the first few years of their life so if you're living in a situation where you're already like just barely eking out an existence you know you don't want to then add to your family if that's going to mean that you know your older kids who are already you know past that dangerous first few years are going to go hungry or going to starve right and i think that that being said i do think that especially as the middle ages progressed people did become much more concerned about their babies Mm -hmm. um as they became more and more like for lack of a better term humanized and seen as actual people rather than as like "Eh, okay this is like not even a thing that's worth naming or caring for like "Eh, i don't really want this we're gonna throw it in the manure heap so first things first in the middle ages your baby needs to get baptized you don't want your kid to die with original sin because then they can't go to heaven like they won't go to hell but they'll end up in like limbo which is like it's fine (laughs) but it's not like great you know so fun fact lay people including women could baptize if the baby was on the verge of death or in another like emergency situation Mm -hmm. And if the mother died, the midwife was actually encouraged to cut the baby out quickly and baptize it. Um, because rudimentary baptism, which, you know, is still valid today, fun fact, um, you just need a little bit of water. <laughs> like, it can literally be saliva that you put on their yeah. head if you don't have water nearby. And just say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, bada bing, bada boom, you're a baptized Catholic, baby. <laughs> like, we did it. But otherwise, in non-emergency circumstances, the baby would be baptized a day or two after the birth. 
the godparents would be called and they would all convene at the church and you'd have the ceremony conducted in the church by the priest where there would be prayers said, the child would be washed in holy water, and then the child would be named. Uh, hence why uh, historically a lot of the time your first name was called your Christian name because you would get it at your christening. There was typically also some gift giving of, you know, probably some typically simple gifts if you were poorer, but they could be very elaborate gifts for the wealthy, and also feasting at the new parents' home. And we see, you know, a example of this in the tales of, like, Sleeping Beauty, right, where the fairies show up to give their gifts at the christening. Right. Yeah, I got um, bank bonds, which then, when I turned 18, Ooh. I got a whole $25 each. So, nice. 18 years later, when the dollar was worth a hell of a lot less, I got like maybe a hundred dollars. <laughs> well, woo! Good to nice. This was when I was a Catholic. I was baptized as a Catholic. So. I no longer do that. Yeah, well, personal was, anecdote. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and my my christening, I got, I feel like, much more standard Catholic baby gifts, where it's like, here's a tiny baby locket uh, that has yeah. an angel on the front. And, like, here is a baby's Bible that, like, you know, has pictures. I think maybe I got, like, a Noah's Ark toy. Oh, I yeah. Know. I mean, I, I had... like, two months I had... old. I had a baby Bible and weird tiny jewelry, a tiny, tiny bracelet with my name on it. Yep. I didn't get the name, but I definitely have, now that I think about it, two different tiny, tiny necklaces. <laughs> There's one that has like an adorable cherub on it, but not a biblically accurate cherub, which should include like countless eyes and multiple <laughs> wings and it should be on fire. And then I have one that's like a little a little cross on the front, and then my initials on the back. It was I very think that's cute. definitely something that you want to put around anyway. an infant's neck. Is literally anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it it was the nineties. It was a different time. We weren't as concerned with safety Strangulation. yet. <laughs> I drank from the backyard hose and played on a wooden playground and got Those splinters. Same. The lead from the outdoor pipes, I think, really add flavor. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, uh, we are not romanticizing any of this. <laughs> anyway, so after the christening, first few months of baby's life, they would mostly be wrapped up kept in a cradle for the first few months, and they were normally going to be minded by the mother, by female neighbors, maybe an older sibling. Um, in some cases, people even hired, like, young-ish girls to babysit. Like, you know, maybe there's, like, a 12-year-old neighbor, and you're like, here, I'll give you some spare change if you watch my kid for the afternoon. And they're like, okay, that sounds great. Um, so, you know, you have a much more communal caring of this child um because you know typically 
I don't want to present this as like women were all stay at home moms because it. I mean, it was not in the way that we would think of a stay at home mom. Like Working. women were mostly in and around the home because that was where they were producing the things that their family needed. Like that is where you were tending the vegetable garden, you were weaving cloth, you were sewing clothes, you were spinning like wool to make into making lace thread exactly um you would also need to like carry water start fires cook everything from like scratch 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 uh milking cows collecting eggs baking the daily bread washing clothes etc preserving the things from the garden so just to be clear that this is not like what Mending clothes. This is not like stay-at-home parent as we would think of it today. This is this is the parent who is making all of the food and clothing and keeping the heat and water on. As well as (laughs) as well as a lot a lot of the work that actually contributes to the family like having cash on hand as well. So like the cloth isn't just for the family that's being sold if they have a skill like lace making beer brewing or embroidery that's being sold beer brewing that's women were often the ones who contributed to and controlled yeah cash whereas like actual coinage whereas men had like land yeah. value and animal stock and things yes, like that exactly so that's just to throw that in there precisely it's yeah, like if also egg money was usually like some yep. of the most valuable cash in hand that you would have was selling eggs or selling honey or selling milk and cheese at the market. So cheese. that is all stuff that women were doing at home, uh, whereas men typically would yep. do things like working in the wheat and legume fields, basically. So they're bringing in kind of yeah. the staple crops and the women are doing all the other food basically exactly anyway um just want to shout out for the the moms of old just you know (laughs) doing doing what they had to do (laughs) drives me crazy when people are like women have always stayed home and i'm like okay but but that's because everybody worked from home basically (laughs) stop it yeah (laughs) It was like exactly. the pandemic, okay? Everyone had a job, they did it at home. Which, like, also... Totally support stay-at-home parents, but, like, this idea that this is something that everybody should do or is even able to do is ludicrous. Because most families, historically and presently, cannot survive on a single income, and that's just the world we live in. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Back to babies. Yeah. So, once a baby could... uh move around a bit they would no longer be swaddled all the time and they would be let you know they they could kind of crawl around a bit hang out again usually being watched by the mother siblings neighbors paid babysitters whoever was on hand now there were lots of dangers in those first two years Um, cradle fires were very common because a fire could spread in a home very easily so if the kid is briefly unattended um, they are too young to move yet 
and yeah. that was a very common source of infant mortality. And once they could crawl around, um, they could, again, you're in a time period where there's an open fire all the time. There's scalding water. There's crawling into, you know, into the way of animals in the street. So there's a lot of cases of children being trampled or dying yeah. from burns from getting too close to, like, having scalding water spilt or, you know, catching fire. Um, so it was... You know, it, there's a reason that you had a whole community of people keeping an eye on the young ones because yeah. it was just a dangerous environment for the most part. Um, there was also, you know, you look at some of the medieval advice on infant care mm -hmm. and how to make sure that they are, like, stimulated properly is actually quite similar to modern advice. So they tell you basically to make sure that you talk in the child's presence frequently, like from mm -hmm. the time that they are an infant, and to make sure that you are using words with the child that are, you know, somewhat easy so that they are able to learn how to say them, words that are easy to pronounce for them and for them to understand, and then kind of have them over time like help them learn language skills essentially mm -hmm. by speaking to them frequently which is something that even today is still encouraged for infant development and they also encouraged the use of nursery songs and rhymes again to help them you know pick up on language so lots of singing in front of the child making nursery rhymes and there were also recommended that you put as much different, like, show your child kind of, like, stimulating things. So try to show them pictures, show them different colors in cloth and plants, show them, you know, shiny objects. Like, you know, it's very similar to what you would think of today, where it's like, you know, you're supposed to, you know, you're advised to make sure that there's lots of different objects basically being shown to the baby with like baby mobiles and mm -hmm. play sets and stuff so that they become accustomed to different different items and this stays pretty similar through the early modern period and into the colonial period in the americas there's again a lot of practical situations where it's just swaddle your kid <laughs> put him in the crib they're not going to move anywhere and there was also the belief that this would help them to grow like long straight limbs if they were tightly bound up and swaddled. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, since like stays, so like kind of early corsets were becoming a thing, both mm -hmm. boys and girls would wear them in, um, you know, from late babyhood into toddlerhood because it was again seen as a way to help them maintain good posture. But by the early modern period, they are discouraging their children from crawling because they think it's too animalistic. Right. So they basically try to skip the crawling stage by propping them up into a standing position in their little corsets <laughs> and trying to get them to just learn to walk. 
And, you know, I mean, to, to an extent, there is, again, the practicality of this of, well, okay, I don't want my child who is too young to understand danger to be yeah. moving around. So I'm going to put them, boys and girls both, we're going to put them into long skirts and we're going to put little, like, baby corsets on them so they can't really crawl around and get into the fire or yeah. get in the way of scalding water. Um and uh, again, you see quite a communal sense of raising a child is still very prevalent at this time. Which I think ties in nicely to what's going on with indigenous societies. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, like, if we're looking at the communities that you're talking about, Sonia, um, People are still um, almost universally living in small villages or like towns, small cities. Um, so you're very rarely spending a lot of time alone, you know, like with just especially like new mothers wouldn't be spending very much time just where they're the only adults around. Um and this is similar to what's happening in indigenous communities and is, uh, I think, ties in well with what we talked about in the last episode with um, Margaret, the midwife, um, about what, you know, would be best for new parents, um, which is like a greater sense of community, especially uh when your child is in early infancy. And so to sort of like go through that, I wanted to lay out um, sort of how like family ties and childcare existed um, in some indigenous communities, specifically on the prairies or in the US, we call it the plains area. Um, so I'm looking specifically at uh, Cheyenne and Crow. Uh, so that's where this is going. And I'm also not going to use, uh, because I don't have pronunciation guides for, uh, the words in the indigenous language. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not going to try, try that. It's, a uh... again, general disclaimer, we work in English and we're doing our best. Yeah. It's just, uh, because this is like transliterated into, uh, latin letters yeah the accents and apostrophes can mean different things moving from language to language and so i just yep not um yep it's not gonna happen sorry guys okay so um for these communities for these nations for these uh cultures um you have sort of a a breakdown from larger society to the like what we would call nuclear family. Um, so the term family is a sort of broad term that can be used to refer to a like small group, but also to the whole culture or to your like larger clan system. Um, in Cheyenne, it roughly translates to like my people. Um, so it can, they, in this, uh, in the articles that I have, they say like you can use this to refer to your community, band, or nation. Also, people who are directly 
genetically related to you. Um, and this is really important to understand like how the language functions because this was a as in uh, English and Euro Western communities, um, kinship ties and community systems are taught not just through action but also through the language um, and how language like words relate to each other. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. Um, essentially, the for like in Cheyenne, the kinship system um, would. Like, we'll start with the child and sort of move out. Um, in the plains and prairie communities, um, children are seen as sort of, like, like inherently brand new, but in a, in a way that's a little different from when we look at, like, medieval or early modern uh, Christian ideas. So, like... Being all new and uninfluenced means that you haven't learned the path of Christ and that you're like, e would be easily influenced by like demons and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. That is not this way. Essentially, it's more that they're closer to what we would call like a sacredness or to a creator. Um, because they're like have just come from there they're still like pure and clean and not like influenced by other people who might have made bad choices um right yeah and then uh sorry <laughs> no it's okay and then um I'm just hanging out yeah so you move from the child out to directly to their like biological parents um and the parents if they are directly raising that child will be the sort of source of um like moral lessons of discipline of like teaching the children how things sort of work within the community and system um apparently there's a scene among the Cheyennes that they still use today that if you want to know how a person really is look at their children um so this parental relationship is sort of how you build and mirror out to all other relationships. So it's really important. Um, but the, the parental caregiving relationship isn't limited to just the mother and father, like the biological mother and father, um, because you also have um, the grandmothers. Um, and infants and toddlers will mostly spend time with um, their biological mother or other people with whom they might use the term mother. So again, because we were talking about before, right, women have a lot of handwork, farm work. In indigenous communities, um, women are in charge of most agriculture um so they're going to be sort of all together um you know preparing clothes preparing food working in the farm um while men are like in plains would be hunting like bison or you know doing like tr trades there's a massive system of transcontinental trade happening uh in these periods so like that's mostly where the men's work. So children spent most of their time with women. Um, 
So it would be their biological mother, her sisters, and uh, the grandparents, the grandmothers. Um, and grandmothers in Cheyenne in particular were seen as like, especially for the children, as like their connection to the earth and like the the wisdom of the land that they're coming from their connection to that um because like grandmothers were seen as like the ultimate giver of life they are um very like wise they've had a lot of experiences if you need a question answered like that's who you go to um and i think i mentioned this before but it was really common for um in these plains communities for especially for firstborn children to be raised almost entirely by grandparents um Mm -hmm. so we have an example here that says that uh, firstborn children may see their grandparents as another set of parents but more experienced and possibly like more kind of playful and less serious about like discipline and stuff um but also uh specifically the crow nation um had a system where um where um the grandparents would adopt the firstborn child um and this uh, we have a quote from um someone who grew up with the crow uh says it's a a practice that was good for young parents to have um their have the grandparents of the child become foster parents um it was good for the whole community because it left the physically capable young couples free from the worries of providing for their children and thus enabled them to go on producing others so they're able to continue working and able to like continue having more children because they're not tied up caring for one that is still like in infancy um yeah there's a word uh grandmother's grandchild it refers to a child who's raised primarily by the grandparents um and then the other the other thing that we sort of talk about that's similar to uh euro western societies is the relationship among siblings especially um older siblings to younger siblings that would be another caregiving relationship and siblings and cousins because of the way that the community is set up and you're living very communally siblings and cousins are essentially like viewed as like a similar relationship there's not like the distance that might exist you know if we think about now that like you live with your siblings and probably go to school with your siblings and all these things but your cousins you know might live in a different province or a different state or you know you see them on family holidays or weekends or you maybe you go to church with your cousins but you might not necessarily have a sibling relationship with them but if you're growing up in early modern North America, either in Euro-Western or indigenous societies, you're probably really, really close with your siblings. Um, and we can talk about, like, as we get into early childhood, uh, from infancy through to early childhood, uh, the, the way that older siblings and cousins would sort of mirror parents you know in play 
yeah. they would have like um you know you would play the roles of parents grandparents children um often play acting like social or ceremonial or like warrior roles within yeah. those things uh like a modern day community where you children might play house right um yeah. but uh there's examples records of you know children making their own camps and assigning kinship roles and like practicing Aww. these like larger cultural ways uh which is just i mean very like obviously happens in all societies yeah. but specifically here they're mirroring this like complex system of care um yeah. the other thing that's really interesting among uh the prairie communities is that as you go out from your biological parents to their siblings so paternal uncles and maternal aunties are also responsible for children as if they're their own so you have a very almost identical word as well in most of these languages to refer to those men and women. Um, so like your brother's or your father's brother would also be your father. Your mother's sister would also be your mother. Um, mm -hmm. And that like care level is, is really close. Um, yeah. And so I have this uh, quote um, here from Robert Yellowtail's daughter, uh, who was a crow. Um, when a child is born, the parents are not really responsible for the upbringing. It's the aunts and uncles and grandparents. Uh, and then we go on to see like a so flexible child rearing was not bound by nuclear structures instead incorporated into communal child rearing practice and a variety of temporary and long-term adoption procedures. So um, I have another quote that crow like crows like to share children. Um, they don't think of adoption as giving a child up. So because you have all of these people who are also assigned um, mother, uh, you might go and live with a, a different mother than the one who actually birthed you for a period of time, um, depending on how old you are, or a different father. Um, Data Peru, who does most of her work uh, on Cherokee, um, which is a similar matrilineal society that we've talked about before, uh, she states that mothers signified a social rather than exclusively biological relationship, and children had many mothers. This is true for fathers as well. Um, the more siblings someone who births a child has, the more parents that they have. Um, this is also, there's um, a society, I think, in Amazonia where... Um, any man a woman has sex with while she's pregnant is considered that child's father. And so it's actually super mm -hmm. beneficial for the children um, if their mother has sex with multiple men, because then they have more people who are responsible for caring for them and ensuring that they have, like, uh, you know, protection and sort of like having all of their needs met, uh, material needs especially. Yeah. Food, shelter. Yeah, exactly. Etc. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, again, um, I have examples from a specific, this specific yellowtail family where they use the exact same term uh, for mother, for their biological mother, as for her sister, um, and would live sort of interchangeably with those two women. Um, we talked about grandmothers. And then we can also talk about, like, so what happens if this biological mother or father who you would initially live with, if they died or became seriously ill, um, because of this, like, system, you really had, if you were a child who this happened to, you really had no sort of shortage of parental figures with whom you could live. Um, and because uh, moving on to the reservations, as we spoke about before, this is a period of high maternal and child uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, yeah. That in the the prairies, sharing of children, like I mentioned before, could help parents sort of uh, could help them grieve and move past grief. Um, so we have in the early 20th century an example um, that the author of the article that I took this from says is unfortunate but rel relatively common experience. So a couple lost a child, um, in this particular case a daughter who succumbed to diarrhea, which was common in this period, especially when moving to reserves because of um, access to clean water. Um, so spring and summer was a period where a lot of children uh got some form of like diuretic type disease cholera or some other disease where you would end up dying from dehydration um and this mother was overwhelmed with grief um the family uh performed a burial and fasted and mourned and when they came back uh they were visiting like a extended family and a woman there had recent had had a daughter they had a daughter who was about the same age um and this woman it says she took so much joy in seeing the little girl that the girl's biological parents said you better take her with you you can keep her and she can stay there and from then on like the woman gained sort of a replacement daughter and the young girl gained another set of parents and those parents extended families so she ended up moving again these adoptions weren't like the way that we think of closed adoptions now, which are, yeah. if you go into like modern child psychology, some of like the worst things that you can do for child and family relations, which is why they're really uncommon to find if you're adopting presently. They're more common if you were like my age and you were adopted as an infant, you probably had a closed adoption. But um, the system, you know, like, all of these parents would be seen as your real parents, but you just had a whole bunch of them and would be able to move between those homes and communities uh, relatively easily. So while she was adopted out to this other family, she would have still lived for periods of time throughout her life with her biological family as well. So it wasn't... These adoptions weren't strict in that sense there are um if we go into sort of 
international indigenous uh, discussions, um, there is also a system of um, dealing with war where people would be sort of adopted out and exchanged to make up for people who might have died in a battle or who if like a murder was committed you would have to replace that person uh and so somebody might be adopted out and in that case Mm -hmm. they would no longer be a part of the nation they were born into but fully a part of the other nation um when you talk about like if this happens as an adult often what happens is right you're you're sort of traded out as a slave um, and then after a certain period of time of like sort of serving the community you would be fully integrated into that new community and renamed uh and yeah would no longer be part of your birth community um so when we talk about like slavery in North America and indigenous North America, like that's what we're talking about again, specifically in North America, this is different if you get into like Mesoamerica where everything's really different. And I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about, uh, because you really have to focus explicitly on that. It's a huge, massive, complicated society. Uh, But yeah, so that's sort of like what's going on uh, in early North America, not early North America, in uh, early modern North America uh, with specifically on the plains. Again, this is similar. A similar system exists um, among the Iroquois and Algonquin speaking nations uh, a little further east. As we mentioned, like Cherokee is brought up here. Um, which is an Iroquois lang- language group nation. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired. Anyway, yeah, so that's sort of that's what we've got going on is this if you're an infant or a young child being born into the, these communities, uh, you have a huge, massive network of people who are going to be caring for you. Um, and yeah, I think that adds like I think it adds a lot of protection for the child as well as um, you don't have you don't have you don't have parents who are completely overwhelmed by the concept of having a child. Like they are not going to be the only person caring for a child, even in a day to day kind of capacity, right? You know, multiple people are going to be like feeding all of the children and carrying the babies around and you know teaching them all of their life skills like this isn't going to be just like well you had a kid you have to raise that kid they are your responsibility to like you know teach and feed and discipline like that would be outrageous in specifically in indigenous communities but also uh also in early modern Euro-Western communities where, like, yes, you might have a primary set of parents, but that might be your biological parents, it might be your biological parents and their siblings, your grandparents, whatever. Like, it'll be, like, quite a few people who are going to be giving you sort of daily care. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't really see a change from that until the 19th century, because as we've uh-huh. talked about before, the Victorians ruin everything. 
Um, basically, this is yeah. The Victorians and in North America, the the pro- progressives slash homesteaders, like the system of capitalist relationship to land, sort of. I mean, screws things up yeah, for everyone. Ju- it, it's <laughs> capitalism, baby. It's capitalism. Yeah, it's capitalism. But anyway, it's let's start with the Victorians. So basically, we get a yeah. situation where, for a variety of reasons, suddenly. Uh, people have to work for wages in order to survive, which means you are no longer, by and large, going to be working out of your home. In some cases, you are, uh, if you're living on, like, a homestead. But even then, with these homesteads in Canada and America, these are isolated homes in the middle of nowhere, um, where suddenly it is all realistically on the mother to care for the kids and if you are in think little house little house on the prairie rather than like you know living in a village situation Um, and if you're living in the city you are typically you know you're going to have the husband goes out to work in the factory or the mines and earn wages and the wife and mother is going to stay home likely doing some form of piecework so maybe she's doing some sewing at home or mm-hmm. other uh, things to bring in a little bit of money but at the end of the day uh, since they have been cut off from land and the common rights and use of common land uh, you really are okay. dependent on wages and because men make much higher wages uh, it's mostly the men who go out and earn the money and the woman stays home and yep. earns like a little bit of money doing maybe like laundry for wealthier people or maybe doing repairs, doing piecework for factories. So yep. what this means is essentially everyone from middle class Victorian women to even working class women are spending a lot of time at home with only their children for company. So you end up with these really, really intense bonds. And there's this kind of idealized and reinforced idea of these mother and child bonds, right? Like we get that the angel of the hearth situation where the woman is supposed to be you know, this this refuge of an uncaring, cold, cruel world where, you know, her husband and children can come home into her loving arms and she will she will take care of everything and nurture everyone. Um That doesn't sound exhausting at yeah, all. Yeah, that doesn't sound unrealistic to put on one person to care for all the kids <laughs> and the husband and the home. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) But this means that essentially for infants, uh, this is when we really start seeing people viewing infant deaths as a horrible tragedy. I mean, prior to the 19th century, it was kind of just seen as like, this is sad. It was bad and sad, but not... It wasn't shocking. It wasn't like, oh man, this is the worst thing ever. Um, It's really in the Victorian era that you start seeing... Um, this idea that the death of an infant or like a toddler was seen as, you know, worse than the passing of an adult, right? Because yeah, it starts to be seen as this, like, 
oh, like, this child had so much potential and they would have lived a full life, but they were struck down by disease or by an accident or, you know, what have you. You also... This is a slight aside, Mm -hmm. but this is one of the things that, while I love this scene, does bother me in Two Towers, where Theoden is, like, talking about the flower. Now it shall cover the graves of my son, and it's like, no parent should have to bury a child. And I'm like, dude... You're fucking medieval. You're medieval. Like, you... You know. You've probably buried, like, six kids already. Just because this one was older and died in... You knew he was gonna die in battle, bro. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. I get being sad, but I'm, the shock... The, sh- the shock of no one should... No parent should outlive their child. Like, they didn't... I've, I've just come to accept that scene where I'm like, okay, we made this in the context of, like, I did not expect to outlive my one son who made it to adulthood because I've probably buried yeah. my other ten kids who died before the age of ten, you know? Like, what are the- Also, that scene is much better in the extended edition because you have that dope song from an fun- actual funerary scene. So good. Which is better than the part where Theoden's talking about a historical ideas. Yeah. But whatever. Anyway. So we also have... Maybe, maybe because it's a fantasy world, children don't die Yeah, that's super that's young. True. And they have, like, elf magic to keep kids alive. We also don't know what kind of diseases they have in Middle-earth, right? Like, they, they don't true. even talk about plagues very much. Like, maybe, maybe Middle-earth animals mm-hmm. don't have diseases that jump to humans. There's, there's no zoonotic yeah, diseases no. in Middle-earth. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. So back to the Victorians. So you also have these new innovations um, in ways that basically you have these ideas of like, okay, we now have the use of like science, quote unquote, that we're bringing into child rearing. So a baby now needs to be taken outside to get the fresh airs because, you know, back in the day you would just, by virtue of being alive, be exposed to the fresh air. But in the Victorian situation, you are spending more and more time indoors, so a baby needs to specifically be taken outdoors. And it is exhausting to carry around an infant, so they come up with a stroller, also known as a pram. So you can take your kids out now and show them off. You can show off that sweet, sweet baby. Um, And at this point, we start seeing that, you know, most kids are still dressed in, like most infants, I should say, are still dressed mostly in white, like hard-wearing fabric for their clothing, um, and they're all dressed in white for the most part, regardless of gender, because that is the color of clothing that can be boiled and bleached and kept super, super clean, because again, we're trying to keep everything very clean, very tidy. We're literally, um, you know, scouring everything to make sure yeah. that there's fewer germs as we see more and more of germ theory coming to light. Uh, we see. And again, the- like small children clothing isn't going to be gendered because yeah you're There's going no to be passing it from child to child you don't want to have to like be making or if you're in the victorian period purchasing very expensively uh yep. new clothes over and over and over again for yep. different gendered children and this is also um the other also, thing is children don't understand gender that young they don't yeah, care. That, that's a whole other 
topic. Don't have a gender reveal party. Or if you do, at least don't, like, blow up half of your town. Anyway, one more, like, scientific treatment we start seeing is the concept of the cry it out or Ferber method, which reflects the fact that from the Victorian period onward, we start getting more ideas about privacy and You know, the parents will sleep in one room and the female children will sleep in a room and the male children will sleep in a room and the babies will sleep in the nursery. Um, And this really comes about like at the end of the 19th century, like late 19th century, you know, 1880s into 1890s. And we start Mm -hmm. seeing this more and more. Um, So the idea was that after about six months of maybe being in a little cradle or bassinet in the parents' room, uh, the child should be able to be moved to, you know, the nursery because now they're big enough to sleep through the night. Um, And the idea was that you could use the cry it out method to train them to sleep through the night. Now, in the original writings about this the idea is that you know you put the baby down and you let them you you leave the room and let them cry for maybe two or three minutes and if they don't settle you go in you soothe them you comfort them put them back down leave them now maybe for five minutes if they're still crying you go in comfort them and you kind of keep repeating that until they eventually settle um So it is... You don't just, uh, like, abandon the baby in, in a yes, room for the, eight hours? Uh, yeah. Like, I will... I mean, that is the way that it is spoken about today in a lot of cases. And I'm not saying that there aren't parents who absolutely have done that, who, who have just been like, yeah, I'm going to let them cry it out and just dump them in the room for eight hours. And, you know, that's that. But, you know, I, there's there's a lot of... You know, there, this exists on a spectrum of, I'm going to give my kid a few minutes of fussing to let them, you know, figure out that it's sleeping time uh, and not cuddling and eating and playing time versus I'm literally just going to let my kids scream for hours and I don't care. Um, and as the 20th century opens and progresses, you get more and more working class women who are staying at home with their children if they can mm-hmm. afford it. And we basically see an even broader swath of women who are able to spend a lot of one-on-one time with their kids because, again, remember, they're having fewer children now. Um, We're finally seeing a dip in infant mortality, so there's this huge emotional and labor-intensive investment in cultivating their kids and, you know, taking care of them as individuals and meeting their every need. Like, on demand. And we start seeing more and more of this culture of consumption. So by the 1920s, we are seeing this idea that, you know, you have to dress baby boys in blue. And everything for the baby boys should be blue. And for girls, they get pink. And everything has to be pink. So we need to have this very, you know, uh, very gendered existence from the second you're born. And just in general, you're seeing more and more consumerism surrounding babies like we go from basically the early modern world previous to like the start of human existence uh where it's like okay we have a baby uh i guess it's going to need some clothes maybe like a cradle or some other like basket 
something to sleep in. Maybe some towels, blankets, that's about it. That's what you need. So once we get to the Victorian era, right, we start seeing more and more, well, okay, you're supposed to have special furniture for the child. You need a crib, you need a stroller, you need somewhere to change the baby's diaper. Um, formula is invented in the 1860s. We love formula on this channel, 10 mm -hmm. out of 10. But like, that's, you know, it's it's another thing that parents are expected to buy um and yeah. you know as the 20th century progresses it just becomes more and more so where it's you know you need some like you need lots of clothes for the baby and it's supposed to be gendered clothing so you can't really easily pass it down to the next kid if they are not the same gender um you're supposed to buy fancy toys you're supposed to buy all kinds of different gadgets and monitors and you know, a whole bunch of things to surround having a baby. So it becomes a very expensive endeavor to have a kid and you're spending a lot of money on this child. And then in the 1990s, we reach, you know, what might be the apogee of this idea, which is Dr. Sears attachment parenting. So by this idea for the first year of life and potentially onwards, yeah. The parent, uh, which in reality means the mother, the woman, uh, is supposed to basically constantly have the baby attached to her. She should wear the baby all day, feed the baby every single time they cry. And of course, you are breastfeeding your baby, not bottle feeding, because, you know, what kind of attachment mother are you if you aren't nursing your child from your own body and you're supposed to sleep in the same bed as the baby? That baby is supposed to be attached to you 24 hours a day. Um, which uh, has recently, more recently, is coming under fire for being just absolutely unrealistic for any person to do this. To be clear, lots of people around the world and historically have, you know, worn their babies and had their baby be in the same room, sometimes even in the same bed as them. Yeah. But again, this is happening in cultural contexts where there's multiple people involved. So you're passing around the baby or passing around this care. Yes, they are constantly being, yeah. often being worn or being held, but you have a whole community doing this, not just you're a mom and you have to do this all the time. The other thing is a lot of these methods are questioned um, in terms of their merit uh, for actually supporting health. Uh, for on, on one thing, eating just constantly isn't the best. Um, the issue with feeding your baby every single time they cry is that you end up with a situation where the child is just snacking all day. Uh, and it's much harder to get the baby to actually reach a point where they're having more consistent meals because they're just constantly having a little snack here and there all day long. Um, which... And only use learning that, like, food is the only yes, soothing it's... method. So, like, if they're distressed about anything else, then it's like, here, have a snack. Then the early, early brain is associating like the any sort of distress with this can be soothing yeah. with food. Yeah, and the other big issue that they've found with it is that having this 
feeding on demand means that you know, again, you're having little snacks rather than proper meal times, so that even when the child is big enough to sleep through the night, because, you know, the first few months, they genuinely do need to eat, like, every two or three hours because their stomachs are so small. Yeah. But once they've hit about six-ish months, they should hypothetically be able to sleep for longer stretches because their stomachs are larger. Mm -hmm. But because you've trained them that every time they cry, they immediately get food, it ends up disrupting their sleep and the mother's sleep or, you know, whoever yeah. is feeding the baby. So it it essentially leads to more issues in the long run because now you have a child who eats whenever they're upset, which can lead to, again, a lot of health issues. And they also want to eat all night and cannot sleep through the night. Uh, the other thing is that co-sleeping can be dangerous, um, crushing the baby by rolling over or suffocating the baby because they're sleeping with blankets and stuff when they're too young can be a real problem. And the other kind of final issue that I found when reading up about this was that it essentially creates a situation where this infant does not learn how to be alone like whatsoever. And then, yeah. you know, you get these complaints from parents saying, well, my two-year-old literally will not allow me to go to the washroom by myself. I can't so much as like use the use the washroom or take a shower. Yeah. Like they need me constantly or they scream and carry on and it's like yes because they've been conditioned to constantly be taken care like constantly being held by one person so they have never gotten used to like sleeping self-soothing yeah just playing nicely on a little blanket for a few minutes like so i mean uh, again like i think there's as as we've talked about before like there's a need for a more community around raising a baby because it is just completely unsustainable to expect someone one individual person to just attach an infant to themselves and live yeah. as if that's normal. Um, and it's also just, we need to really reevaluate the way that we treat parents uh, broadly, but mothers specifically. And the frankly just ridiculous standard. Oh, sorry, the plane. Let me do that again. And I think it's also that we need to reevaluate the types of standards that we are putting on parents generally and especially yeah. on um, mothers like it just because it's it's so often this idea of the standard for good is actually perfect like you have to if you are not a hundred percent perfect a hundred percent of the time if you aren't able to do this just incredibly demanding task then you're a bad mom and that's just not the case and it it's not you know it, it's just not true that that is going to somehow ruin your kid forever because you put them down in a playpen yeah. sometimes <laughs> and that being said we will say goodbye for this week and see you next week when we talk all about childhood illnesses with a special guest. Special guest! Special guest time! Thank you so much for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. If you want more 
awesome Bobby Aga content, uh, you should join our Patreon where you can get access to bonus content, exclusive merch, um, our super special Discord, and extra book club content. Um, we want to specifically shout out these Patreon members. Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian, Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, and thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!